Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. Good morning. My name is Michelle Ami Reyes, and it is a joy to be with you all. Um, thank you for just the kind welcome. I got here a little bit early and just felt so welcomed by uh, the folks I was able to chat pre-service. Uh, I think that alone says a lot about a church. Uh, and I, I praise God for partners in the gospel. And my husband Aaron and I, we see uh, Pastor Zach and by extension you all as partners in the gospel in this great city of Austin. Uh, you know, even in just in uh, recent past, uh, Pastor Zach, my husband, myself, um, you know, we've been downtown uh, raising our voices uh, for Julio Jones, uh, who was on death row recently, uh, as well as Melissa Lucio, the first Latina who was on death row uh, in Texas, and praise God, her execution was delayed uh, last week, and so, um, you know, my, my husband and I, we planted Hope Community Church in 2014. I also serve as scholar in residence there. If, if we lined up Hope Community Church and Restore Austin, uh, we'd probably look very different, right? Uh, in terms of ethnicity, socioeconomic status, uh, perspectives, perhaps even geographical location, but we have, our churches have shared goals to promote the gospel in the city, to build God's kingdom together, and we are linking arms in that, uh, and, and, and for that reason, I praise God for you, even though I don't know each and every one of you guys, and that's the beauty of the body of Christ, amen? Uh, you know, today is also exciting because it's May 1st, which means it is the first day of AAPI Heritage Month. I myself am second generation Indian American. Uh, it is a joy to be preaching on the first day of AAPI Heritage Month. Uh, one of the things uh, that I am passionate about uh, in my work uh, with the Asian American Christian Collaborative and just personally is for the Big C Church to normalize being taught under Asian American voices, and specifically Asian American women. Um, so if you're, if you're not familiar, <laughs> if, if I was to ask you the question, what Asian American Christian voices are you listening to? And that's a short list. Uh, I, I would encourage you to follow me, to grab a copy of my books, to follow the Asian American Christian Collaborative, because we're going to be doing a lot of big highlights this month. Um, because we're out here, y'all. <laughs> Asian American Christian leaders are out there, um, and, and they are part of the, the family of God. And so um, Asian American uh, Christian thought theology is, is something that we should all be well-versed in. And finally, I'm honored to be closing out your church series on God's big family and to talk specifically about the issue of 
classism. Uh, the title of my sermon today is that classism has no place in God's family, and we'll be looking at the passage in Luke chapter 8 with Jesus and the bleeding woman. Uh, and, and so what I want to just start by saying is that if you want to learn what classism is, talk to an Indian. And, and this is perfect because I'm Indian. So there are five, if you don't know about the caste system, you know, Isabel Wilkerson, she just came out with a book on caste. If that's kind of your first understanding of caste, let me, let me break this down for you. Uh, there are five castes or classes in India. And the people belonging to the highest caste are the Brahmins, right? This is the priestly class. Uh, they're followed by the Kshatriyas, which are the warriors and the farmers. Then the Vaishyas, which are the merchants, traders, businessmen. The Shudras which are, uh, you know, servants, workers, laborers, they're actually considered the lowest caste. And then there are the Dalits, which are the untouchable, which for a lot of traditional Indians, they say, aren't even part of the caste system. That's how low they are. Now, my mom's family, uh, my mom is 100% uh, ethnically Indian. Uh, she was born and raised in Uganda, Africa. Her great-great-grandparents were brought there as forced laborers by the British Empire to build the railroad in Uganda and Kenya. Um, her family was part of the merchant class, so kind of right there in the middle. Uh, and in the, in the Indian village where she grew up in, uh, it was made clear to her from a young age, as it is in, in, in every traditional Indian family, uh, that you are only allowed to marry within your caste, within your class, if you will. So only fellow merchants, only fellow folks from the Vaishya caste. Um, I have another friend, an Indian doctor, who was born a Dalit, an untouchable, in India. Now, he's super smart. He came to the United States. He got a medical degree. He came back to India as a medical doctor to treat HIV-AIDS patients. But nobody there treats him as a legitimate doctor. Only uh, fellow Dalits will come to him uh, for medical service. Uh, for, for the rest of the other castes, he's seen as somebody that uh, they would, they would want to have no association with. Because you see, when you live in a caste system, you see people of lesser classes as inferior to you. People of lower classes are inferior because they are poorer than you. And because they are poorer, that must mean that they are more immoral than you as well. It's crazy, but that's how a lot of Indians think. But just to back up here for a second, okay, what is classism? We're talking about the caste system. What is classism? Uh, a, a friend of mine, professor and missiologist, Dr. Al Tyson, another fellow Asian-American, he has a good definition of classism. He says this, classism is collective prejudice formed into a system of inequality that is based on socioeconomic stratification. It's undergirded by embedded cultural narratives surrounding the poor and then instituted by the powers that be at the expense of the poor of the poor. In other words, classism is what happens when people of wealthier socioeconomic status are biased against people of lower social classes. Now, in India, classism is so integral uh, in, in the culture that people rarely question it. It's the air that they live and breathe. It's normal. Uh, but it would be wrong for us here in the United States to become high and mighty and think, well, thank God we don't live in a caste system. Thank goodness that that doesn't exist here, because in our westernized world, recognized castes don't exist, but other forms of classism do. Isabel Wilkerson, in her book, Caste, The Origins of Our Discontent, writes this. 
Like other old houses, America has unseen skeletons, a caste system that is as central to its operation as are the studs and, and joists that we cannot see in the physical buildings we call home. And that's what I want to talk about today. Classism exists in the United States. You don't have to look further uh, than the city of Austin to, to see that this is true. For all the progressive rhetoric that is often lobbied around by our city council and city representatives, the homeless in Austin are still treated as criminals. We've basically made it illegal for them to live in tents within the downtown district. They're treated like a disease, something to be avoided at all costs. Uh, we're taught to mistrust folks asking for money at the street corners. Uh, we say to ourselves, they're probably going to just use it for drugs. Just this morning, as I was driving here uh, through this very nice neighborhood, there was a man, uh, a homeless man, walking down the sidewalk and, you know, kind of just kicking the dirt. And I could see on the other side of the road, there was a husband and wife holding hands that immediately stopped. And, and, and they were watching this homeless man kicking the dirt. And you could just see the wheels in their brain moving. Should we keep going? You know, this guy's kind of stopped. Should we, should we walk past him? Should we turn around and go the other direction? That's what we do when we see poor people. When we see the homeless, we see danger, red flag, turn around. But it's not just that. There is a whole spectrum of classism that exists within the U.S. American church. In fact, I would argue that classism hurts the church more than we realize. Think about these examples for a second. How often have you seen church leaders shame people because they can't tithe or they can't tithe 10%? What about when a homeless person walks through the front doors of our Sunday service and we begin to panic and clutch our purses a little tighter because we are worried that they might steal something? What about when a pastor demands to know folks' bank account statements or income for membership? What about when a single woman is shamed because she has to work and her kids have to either be in daycare or you know, an after-school program? There is this old conservative mantra that married Christian women should be at home with their kids. But that argument in and of itself is classist because it takes zero consideration to the realities of the working poor. Consider as well when white-collared congregants think less of their fellow blue-collared brothers and sisters. We think less of people who don't make as much money as us. We even go as far to think that because they are poorer, they are less qualified to hold leadership positions or that their ideas uh, are, are, uh, have less weight to them, that they shouldn't be invited to the table for strategic decision-making uh, because somehow, because they are poor, they are less educated, less qualified, um, and, and, and we distrust their opinion. Finally, how many of us think less of fellow Christians who ask for money, whether in person or online? Now, I like the way Matt Ingalls talks about classism in the church. He wrote this wonderful article for Missy Alliance back in 2018, and I quote, American Christianity has a long history of segregation via social strata. Many of our most robust spiritual movements gained momentum only through the good graces of the lower classes. Think, for example, the First Great Awakening. That would have been nothing without the tired and the moneyless throng eagerly listening to George Whitfield's thunderous voice. 
Yet as these same movements gained notoriety and public acceptance, the eager yet penniless mass often grew neglected and replaced by the up-and-coming middle class. And given the choice, listen to this, given the choice between appealing to the penniless versus well-educated tithers, few Christian leaders chose the former. A church concerned with the pleasures that come from obscuring the poor cannot truly thrive. It comes to an untimely ruin choked by going its own way, thinking its own thoughts, going after its own comforts, how many churches worry about their rate of growth or their annual budget or the things that make them happy, music, coffee, aesthetics, uh, in Austin, tacos, right, or barbecue. These things we strive for may be the very things choking the life out of us. Now, that being said, classism is hard to detect. It's not as, as insidious as racism, for example. It's much more sub submerged, but hear me, the invisibility of classism is not a justification to pretend it doesn't exist. To quote Dr. Al Tyson again, if Christian mission does not challenge classism, then it is complicit in it and thus undermines the work of the gospel. And I would add, if the church does not challenge classism, then it is complicit in it and thus undermines its work toward unity in God's big family. You see, if we are serious about unity within God's big family, classism can have no root in our hearts and in our life together. Now, I want to look at Luke chapter 8, because Jesus provides the model for us of what it means not only to interact with the poor among us, but to see the poor as our fellow brothers and sisters. And to make this truth poignant, we're going to dive specifically into Luke 8, verses 42 through 48, uh, and, and uh, this unknown woman simply called the bleeding woman, which in and of itself I think is provocative, because isn't that how we see the poor? The dirty guy on the street corner, the crazy guy, the guy who's high, we don't even name them. And this story leans into those sorts of biases already, and Jesus is going to turn all of that on its head. The two guiding principles I want to share through this text is that we must deconstruct classism through, first, familial solidarity, and second, narrative justice. And I'm going to unpack those two. But first, a deep dive into the text, okay? Luke 8, verses 42 through 48, we meet a woman who has this debilitizing physical condition that has caused her to bleed for 12 years straight. I can't even imagine. That would be a horrible situation to have in 2022, but can you imagine having that condition in the first century world? Now, despite the efforts of many doctors, her condition is worse than ever. You can only imagine her quality of life, right? Uh, because she's bleeding, she's an outcast, she's considered ritually unclean, right, because of the Jewish culture that she lives in, and she would have been forced to live apart from society, right? Like if this was the first century world, she'd be living under a bridge, or if it was 2022, she'd be living under the bridge, hidden, forgotten, lonely. She may not even have had much time left to live, now, not only this, but you can imagine she would have been impoverished by her illness. If she had given all of her money for doctors, she is dirt 
poor. So her disease hasn't just robbed her of her livelihood, but her reputation as well. Her situation has directly impacted her social standing. So she's desperate, and out of her desperation, I mean, just imagine the scene. It's a throng of people just crowding around Jesus, and she just lunges through this crowd. I imagine her kind of behind Jesus because she's trying to stay hidden, and she touches just the fringe, the hem of Jesus' shirt, believing that just making contact with Jesus would, would heal her. She doesn't think that someone like her could actually walk up to Jesus face to face and ask him, Jesus, will you help me? That's the level of shame that she has. But she believes in his power. If only she can just reach out and touch him. And, and this woman's faith is proven true because after she touches just that fringe, that edge of his cloak, in verse 44 it says, immediately her bleeding stopped. Now, after she's healed, Jesus stops what he's doing and draws attention to her, giving her, you know, he asks the question, who touched me? And she comes up to him, and he gives her the opportunity to share her miraculous healing with the crowd. When the woman comes forward, Jesus invites the woman to share her story. In verses 47 through 48, we read, in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, I want to work backwards uh, because at the end of this story, Jesus calls the woman daughter. And that's incredibly profound. In calling the now formally bleeding woman daughter, Jesus declares a familial kinship with her. There is a familial solidarity that happens in this story. And, and I want to stop right there before I go further and just ask y'all, when you're driving home or you're hanging out in downtown Austin or if you live in this neighborhood and you're walking down the sidewalk like that couple I saw this morning and you meet someone or you see someone who is clearly poor, what word pops into your head? Is it stranger or fam? There is sociological research that shows that in general, people don't want to be friends with the poor. There was this Children and Youth Services review with, with a study that found that poverty and economic hardships negatively impact a person's social relations. In other words, if you're poor, you're not going to have many friends. The study, in fact, argued that poorer children have fewer social class friends, school class friends and are more often isolated. And this should be incredibly convicting for us because what the study reveals about us as humans is that money often drives our relationships. We are more prone to be friends with folks in our own socio socioeconomic bracket or above because we see people who are rich as safer, more morally upstanding, more desirable as friends because we, you know, it's mutually beneficial, while our perception of the poor is rampant with stigmas of dirty, unsafe, untrustworthy, not worth our time. It's going to be too much work. In short, we don't see the poor as our equals. We certainly don't see them as worthy of being close enough to be considered family, but Jesus does. Now, one of the most provocative bits of the story in Luke 8 is that this story of the bleeding woman is sandwiched between uh, another story of healing. So Jesus, with this throng, he's actually on his way to a rich man's house. 
Right before the bleeding woman touched him, this, this rich man, the synagogue leader named Jairus, had come to him and said, please, my daughter is sick. Please come heal her. Now, Jairus is a man of high socioeconomic status. But on the way to Jairus' house, Jesus stops to heal the bleeding woman. And he calls her daughter, the exact same term in the text that's given to Jairus' child. The rich girl and the bleeding woman are both called daughter. Now, check this out. The bleeding woman was sick for 12 years, and we read in uh, 841, the rich, the rich girl, Jairus' daughter, was 12 years old. That's an intentional parallel in this story. Uh, when Chris was up here talking about like the words, <laughs> the Bible's made out of words, and like there's, there's like depth and riches the more you go into um, scripture. This is one of those moments because this is an intentional parallel. These two women are of completely different socioeconomic statuses, the rich elite and the poorest of the poor, and yet Jesus treats them equally. He treats them both like family. They are both daughters worthy of love and care and healing. And so like Jesus, we must make it a practice to call everyone around us, whether rich or poor, our brothers and sisters. That familial language is the first step to solidarity within the family of God. Now, in fact, to take this one step further, I want to share with you a story from when Dr. Martin Luther King traveled to India. Uh, Dr. King was a follower of Mahatma Gandhi. So much of Dr. King's ideology on peace and nonviolent resistance that we see within the civil rights movement in our country in the 60s came from Gandhi's teachings on ahimsa. In 1959, Dr. King makes a trip to South India, and he's on tour with his wife. He's visiting different churches, different schools. Uh, and what's interesting is that on one occasion in a school, by the school's principal, he was introduced to the crowd of children as a fellow untouchable. Now, you remember the caste system, right? The five, <laughs> the five levels, the Dalits or the untouchables were not even considered part of the caste system. That's how low they are. And let me read to you Dr. King's own account of that experience. He said this in a letter. I remember when Mrs. King and I were in India. We journeyed down one afternoon to the southernmost part of India, to the city of Trivandrum in Kerala. That afternoon I was to speak at a high school, and this particular school was attended by and large by students who were children of former untouchables. There's so much in that, former untouchables. These are orphans, these are children who have died, whose parents have died. Now the principal of the school introduced me and then he came to the conclusion of his introduction. He said, young people, I would like to present to you a fellow untouchable from the United States of America. And Dr. King says, for a moment I was shocked and even peeved that I'd be referred to as an untouchable. But King said he then started to think about the fact that 20 million of my brothers and sisters were still in still smothering in airtight cages of poverty in an affluent society. And he goes on to say, and as I thought about this, I finally said to myself, yes, I am an untouchable, and every Negro in the United States is an untouchable as well. You see, Dr. King embraced a familial solidarity with a people group wholly unlike himself in terms of ethnicity and geographical location and, and, and on, 
going as far to take on their terminology for himself in an effort to show that he was one of them. Now, when I think of the story of Dr. King in India, I can't help but be reminded of the Apostle Paul's declaration in 1 Corinthians 9.22 when he states, To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Because when you become someone, you take on their perspective in life. You share their values, their interests. Um, my husband and I, uh, as Pastor Zach mentioned, you know, we're, we're church planters in one of the poorest parts of East Austin. We planted our church, Hope Community Church, in 2014. We, my husband didn't take any income for the first five years of our ministry in East Austin because when you're serving the poorest of the poor, they don't got no money. <laughs> like what, what kind of tithe are you going to be asking for from these people? In fact, I was making a few hundred dollars. A few, our son had just been born. I'm making a few hundred dollars um, teaching up at uh, Southwestern University in Georgetown. That was our income. And we lived so far below the poverty line. Uh, we lived in a house that was in one of those zoning areas that's a flood zone uh, because that's what happens when you're poor. You live in houses that are also locationally marginalized within our own society, and we experienced flooding and fleas and like it felt like the plagues y'all <laughs> living in our first home in East Austin in dirt poverty and I'll tell you what when my husband and I before we came here we lived in Chicago and I remember driving through downtown Chicago on my way to go teach I used to teach at Moody Bible Institute and sometimes thinking in the back of my head like what's wrong with these people like why can't they just get cleaned up why are they living on the streets? Don't they, don't they want something better for themselves? Uh, how do they stand being so dirty? And yet, God radically stripped me of all of those thoughts when my husband and I lived in poverty. Because then we got it. We understood the struggles of not knowing when our next meal was going to be, uh, of, of, of not knowing uh, if our house was going to fall apart on us, uh, of not knowing what to do with the rodents and the fleas and the feral cats living under our uh, pier and beam home and all of these other sorts of things. And all of a sudden, I could look at my neighbor and say, we're family because we're in the trenches together. And instead of any sort of judgment, any sort of judge, critical sort of negative description of my neighbors, I was like, I got you and I know you got me. And that's what family does for each other, right? And so that is, what, that is what's happening in Luke chapter 8. That's what's happening in 1 Corinthians 9. To the weak I became weak. And I'm not saying that you guys all have to give up your jobs and go live in abject poverty and live under the poverty line to understand what it means to be poor. To the poor I became poor. But how many of your friends are poor? How often do you spend time in the city talking with the poor? How many of y'all even just wave in your car to that person at the street corner or have a water bottle in your car to say, hey, God loves you, have some water. Do you need anything else? Um, my kids get on me now if we don't have water in the car. They're like, mom, we don't know who we're gonna meet. We need to have water bottles with us. Like that's what it means to see the poor as family because your, your radar is high for what, what do you need? I got you. 
That's what makes the biblical command to become the weak, to become the poor among us so countercultural because we are called to see the poor as family in our language and then live out that solidarity by treating our family's issues and interests as our own. In other words, for followers of Jesus, our socioeconomic bracket should not insulate us from each other. A rich woman should care about the pains and struggles that a poor woman has. An African-American on the west side should care about the pains and struggles that a Latino on the east side has. An Anglo-American living in Sunset Valley should care about the pains and struggles of a black man living under the bridge at 6th Street. We must be intentionally and verbally declare that poor people, the homeless among us, those living under the poverty line, uh, are our brothers and sisters. We must intentionally and verbally declare that Asian Americans, Native Americans, Black Americans, Latino Americans, and more who are financially disadvantaged for whatever reason, whether it's absolute poverty, re relative poverty, for whatever reason, they are our brothers and sisters. We may not be physically proximate to each other, but as a family under the banner of Christ, we have an obligation of moral proximity, of familial proximity to each other, uh, to care for, for one another physically and spiritually, whether we're poor, rich, or somewhere in between. Because when you're my brother, when you're my sister, and you're hurting, I'm going to show up and I'm going to stand up with you. Your pain is my pain. That's what it means to be family. Amen? We need to constantly be asking ourselves, what are the needs of my poor brothers and sisters? And more importantly, how can I care for them in ways that they want to be cared for instead of flinging things at them that they neither want or need? And then, and then after that, getting upset, like, oh, they were so ungrateful for <laughs> my wonderful gift to them. This is where relationships matter. We do this in relationship with one another and knowing what real needs are. Don't be that, you know, uncle that gives the, all the nephews and nieces this crazy gift at Christmas, and they're like, what is this? Like, like be the, the father, the mother, the, the brother, the sister that, like, knows your family's greatest desires, and you give them that uh, because you're living in relationship and you know their heart. That is what gospel-rooted racial solidarity is. It means showing up and standing up for a person or a group whose plight might not appear to have anything to do with your own because the path to unity within the body of Christ is through building deep family bonds across socioeconomic lines, among many other things, as this uh, sermon series has covered. And a simple practical step in the right direction is to start calling the poor among us, even, even fellow poor, poor folk, our brothers and sisters. Whether you're talking to someone directly, you're walking on the sidewalk, hey brother, how are you today? Or you're having conversations about the poor in your church or around your dinner table, center familial language because I guarantee you the way that we describe the poor will directly impact our posture of heart and how we want to then go and engage with the poor. Second, in the story of Luke 8 and the bleeding woman, we see that we must believe the stories of the poor. Now check this out. Jesus' response to the bleeding woman after she first touches him feels a bit weird. 
Like, he looks around, and he's like, who touched me? And I'm like, come on, you're God. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> you know who touched you. And yet, Jesus knew what he was doing. There's something very subversive in his reason for asking. Because if you remember, this is a, a woman that's been marginalized in every, every way possible, physically, socially, uh, economically. And if she had just silently disappeared and tried to go back into society people would have questioned that. They would have found that suspicious. They may not have believed her. And, and, and so what Jesus does, and actually in the first century world, they could have even called her demon-possessed or accused her of stealing something, right? That, that it, it could have gone really bad for her. But by calling her out and making her publicly tell her story, Jesus doesn't just heal her physically. He restores her dignity as well, he basically tells the crowd, listen up, know who this woman is, and know her story. He gives her all the time in the world to tell her story. She has his full attention, and not only that, but his validation of her story and experiences ensures that others will believe her and welcome her back into society. In essence, what Jesus offers the bleeding woman is narrative justice. Narrative justice is defined as taking the microphone away from the dominant voice and placing it in the hands of those on the margins and saying, we want to hear what you have to say. To the people who are often silenced, to the people who are often overlooked. It's like, no, we want to hear your story from your voice because every person has the God-given right to tell their story in their own voice. Now, Ken Witzma, author and founder of the Justice Conference, he, he writes this. One of the things I've realized and begun to teach is that the message is not only in the content of what is being taught and presented, but also in who is bringing it. Indeed, when we address injustices and fight for the oppressed, we can fall into suppressing those we seek to liberate by failing either to shift the power dynamic or to recognize the need for promoting the first-person voice of the oppressed. In other words, don't have a conference to talk about the poor and not invite a single poor person to speak at the conference. Same thing could be true about immigrants or about I fill in the blank, but you know, when, when we're all in our you know, sort of social warrior armchairs and talking about this in this very theoretical uh, way, and, and we oftentimes forget to bring the people directly living that experience out um, to, to hear their story and to be guided by them. In other words, when it comes to the poor, we must pursue narrative justice by listening to those who have been financially disadvantaged, whether through absolute or relative poverty, whether it's because of something situational that's happened in their life or generational that they inherited this poverty from their parents or grandparents and err on the side of trusting and believing their story. I, I think about how quick we often are to distrust a person, a poor person's stories, right? Their, their stories naturally because of what they have gone through are complex and they, they move in many different directions. Now some of us, we hear these stories and think, he's probably just making that up. Or we think they're crazy or we think they're high. We've been so trained to distrust the poor that when we hear their stories of struggle and pain, instead of responding with empathy and care and saying, I believe you, we just try to silence them or to walk away or just to ignore. 
But Jesus wants to hear the bleeding woman's story, and he wants everyone around him to hear it too. Uh, There's a kind of a small little blip in the story in Luke 8 where even after this is all done, after the healing and and the woman's been platformed and she, she shares her story, you see, and Jesus continues to talk to her. Like he's not in it for this kind of quick one and done platform leave. Like he's, the crowd's still moving and he's over in the corner continuing to talk to this woman. He's, he doesn't have anywhere else to go. I mean, yes, Jairus' daughter is like, well, she's about to die. But he, he's like, you matter. And I'm not going to be in a rush to leave you. He gives her his full attention He restores her dignity and he treats her as an equal. And this is so important because we're all storied people. I mean, when when you think about each of our core longings, we all want to be loved. We want to be heard. uh, We want to be understood. That doesn't change based on your socioeconomic status. Every person, rich or poor, has a story. And the way... We treat people of different social classes as families by believing their story. I want to hear what you've gone through. And my, my heart response is to say, I believe you. I'm sorry for what you've gone through. Instead of being immediately skeptical or distrusting, we can respond to the homeless, the poor, the financially disadvantaged with the kind of welcome that Jesus offers this bleeding woman by giving them our full attention and wanting to know them better. Moreover, when we treat the poor as family and and with valuable stories to share, valuable stories that we need to hear, we place ourselves in a position to learn from them. You see, we, so many of us, need to strip ourselves of any notion that the poor are simple projects to be fixed. Uh, I think of the poor in our our own church. uh, And one weekend, one of our dear brothers who lives under the bridge, he came to church uh, and he had a single dollar. It was all crumpled up, you know, and he, he brought it in. It was the only dollar that he owned in the entire world. And he came up to myself and my husband, uh, and he was like, I, I want to give this to church today. And we kind of stopped. We're like, are you sure? Like, this is your only dollar. Are you sure you want to give your only dollar away? And he said, he, he looked at us in complete seriousness, and he said, of course. Jesus gave me this dollar, and I want to give it back to Jesus. And we were, we were just floored, just absolutely floored uh, by this man's generosity. And I can tell you in all seriousness that I don't know anyone more generous than the poor. It is the people that have the least that are willing to give the most away. They're the ones that are willing to give you the, the coat or the shirt off their back or the food that they have. The, the more money we have, the less generous we become. That is something that we have as a church to learn from our poor brothers and sisters. I am constantly amazed at how much those who have so little are willing to give as an extension of love and care. This is but one of many lessons that we have learned from the poor brothers and sisters in our church. Now let's talk practical application. You know, one simple step that we can take to to find ways to regularly center is, is to find regular ways to center the stories of the poor in our church. I love that you guys have a good news segment. That is awesome. Could you perhaps create a Sunday morning testimony time? 
you know, give space for the working poor and the homeless to share part of their testimony or story as part of your liturgy on a monthly or, or regular basis with, with no strings attached, with no sort of like, you know, pat ourselves on the back, we, we platform somebody's story, but more so just to listen, to learn and say, hey, we, we've got our blind spots. Uh, we we want to learn from you and be changed by your story. You know, another practical application is to consider whether uh, the voices of the poor are, are represented in your church leadership. And, and again, to quote Matt Ingalls from, from his Missy Alliance article, he says, think about your church. When was the last time, and, and you guys don't have fog machines, but when was the last time between the fog machines and the cedar clap walls that your church heard from a poor woman? I'm asking if people of meager means are included in the life of your church. Do they help make decisions? Do, do they host, not just attend small groups, but do they host small groups? Can you find them participating at every level of church life, or are they relegated to worshiping as seat fillers? In other words, it's not enough to simply just hear stories of the poor and then go on our merry way, uh, like a checklist, so to speak, but we must be led by them, changed by them. You know, I think of the story in Acts chapter 6 where you have these Hellenistic Jewish widows who complain to the church in Jerusalem that they're being overlooked, that they're being uncared for. And the church leadership realizes that the only way that these Hellenistic Jewish widows are going to be cared for is if they bring in Hellenistic Jewish leadership. We, we know how to contextualize best to our own context, if you will. And so uh, seven Hellenistic Jewish deacons are brought in to specifically care for these women. And this story has a profound lesson for us in the church today. Who is it that we want to serve? And more importantly, who is it among us in our congregation and in our community around us that's being overlooked? And I would argue and guarantee that in any church, the poor is, is always to some extent being overlooked. Now the way to address this issue is to have people of every demographic and every socioeconomic status in some way leading and serving in the church because Imagine if in your commitment to caring for the poor, you had the poor in real leadership with power in strategy and decision-making processes. It wasn't just, you know, the wealthiest among you that are on the financial <laughs> advisory board, but it was people of, 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 of different classes, if you will. If we are a church that's committed to caring for the poor among us, then we must have church leaders either currently experiencing poverty or who have lived in poverty at some point in their life because they will know how to best care for those in financial need. So let me be clear. The Bible says, and Jesus models in his own life, that there can be zero classism within the family of God. Jesus and the early church actively combated classism, and we too must fully include the poor without you know, making them feel uh, condescended to in any way because they are our equals, they are family. It is about us saying to anybody who is different from us, tell me your story. I want to know you better. What are your needs? How can we care for each other? Let's journey together. And we can do this intentionally by committing to familial solidarity in our language and actions as well as in our pursuit of narrative justice for the poor and a commitment to being led by those 
in a diverse spectrum of socioeconomic brackets. So I want to conclude by asking you to reflect on these questions. First, what have you been taught about the poor, whether in your church, your family, or community? You know, what are the prevailing attitudes of the poor um, that you've been raised with, perhaps from your community or elsewhere? We have to start by understanding some of the own negative biases that we have been um, formed in, that perhaps are even, uh, that we don't even realize. Second, what is one practical way that you can better treat the poor among you as family? Think about your own church. Think about the people that you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with. Is there somebody here within this space that you avoid simply because they don't make the same amount of money as you? Or because fill in the blank, because they feel some sort of poor stereotype. And third, how could you play a more active role in helping elevate the stories of the poor so that others can hear and believe their experiences? Now, let me be clear, if I haven't been already, like racism, the issue of classism, there's no two sides of the story, right? You can't have a debate about, well, okay, here's the merits and here's the cons, right? Racism and classism are great evils. <laughs> uh, to quote Mahatma Gandhi, untouchability is a blot on humanity. It is a sin, a great crime. And the more that we see classism in this light, not as just something that's like, oh, you know, maybe I should... You know, like it's elective, <laughs> like maybe I'll address this this week, but not this week. We have to see classism as a great evil, as a blot on humanity, as a blot on the family of God. And the more that we see it in that light, the more that we can ask for the Holy Spirit to compel us to deconstruct it within our own hearts and within our society so that all peoples, each and every one of God's children may flourish together. Amen? Let us pray.